Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome to Vox Church. If you're new to Vox, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you for being with us. We always like to take a moment and welcome all of our locations. So nine different locations and then a lot of people joining us online. We put our hands together and say hello. Good morning. I had a hard time saying Brantford there. There we go. God bless you. Welcome to Vox Church. So thankful for you here with us. Excited also about our Stanford location, Greater Stanford, now meeting at the Wall Street Theater. It is just an awesome space. So excited about what God is doing at that location. All of our locations really believe in God for great things. We're in a teaching series called This Present Renewal, looking at this idea of spiritual awakening, operating from the premise that 11 words can change your life. 11 words can change your year. And they're found in the book of James where the scripture says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's God telling us that if we would just take him up on that offer, we would experience supernatural life and power invading our world. And so we looked at the story of Samuel and the return, right? The return that all of Israel returned to the Lord. We looked at the story of Elijah where the fire fell on the offering. And we looked at the story of Josiah. Those are three Old Testament examples of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But today, we're going to move to the New Testament. We're going to move to the day that the church was born, the first birthday of the church of Jesus Christ. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, one of my favorite texts. I've shared on it and preached on it many times, but I think this is the best one of all the times I've ever preached on it. So here we go. Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, I want to read the story with you. We'll read all the way down to verse 21. It says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now this is the disciples. There's about 120 in an upper room. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthian, Medes, and Elamites, residents in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some, some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven and raised his voice and addressed the crowd. 
Fellow Jews, he said, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. I love this answer, by the way. It's one of my favorite little verses in the Bible. It's only nine in the morning, which is kind of strange because like if it were later, then we, I don't know. But anyways, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here he quotes the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire, billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone, somebody say everyone, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a word, right? Wow, he quotes from Joel. I want to talk to you today under the heading, this is yours. Can you look at your neighbor and tell him this is yours? Person to your left, person to your right, tell him this is yours. This is yours. This is yours. That's our theme for this morning. Let's pray, church. Let's open our hearts to God at every one of our locations and let's see what he has to say to us. Lord Jesus, we want to hear your voice today. I know that your spirit is active, that you are alive, that you're here right now in the midst of all of our craziness and the busyness and the wild challenges of 2022. You are present now. And so we welcome your spirit. I pray that you'd speak in a way that was unmistakable, God, in a way that would change us and transform us. We invite you to do a work in our lives today in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. Amen. The other day I was looking through my closet and I found a sweatshirt, sweatshirt that I had received as a gift during Christmas time. And I had forgotten that I'd had it. And it was in my closet all along, but I hadn't worn it in over a month because I just didn't remember that it was there. But it's a nice sweatshirt, and I liked it. And I remember I pulled it out, and I said, ooh, I remember this one. I like this sweatshirt. And I wore it that day, and it was fun to rediscover a gift, you know? It was fun to rediscover a gift. I wonder if you've ever rediscovered a gift. You're looking through your wallet and you find a, you know, that you forgot somebody gave you a gift card. You know, has that ever happened to you? And you're like, oh, we're going out to eat tonight, right? And you find the gift card or you find an old gift that you, maybe you lost a while ago and you can't remember what it was. I remember on my 16th birthday, my parents threw me a big party and I got gift cards because when you're 16, that's all you get, right, is gift cards. I got gift cards and I had this envelope full of gift cards, and it was, I don't know, it was probably hundreds of dollars worth of gift cards from everywhere, and I lost it. And I don't know where it went, and I actually never found it. It was a real bummer, but, uh, but it's so fun, maybe one day, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Maybe one day, but it's so fun to rediscover a lost or a forgotten gift. I read a story this week about uh, Maria Fyodorovna. She was the queen of Russia in the late 1800s, and her husband, of course, very wealthy, very powerful, the royal family of Russia during that time, that era, if you know your history. And it was during that time that her husband, the king, gave her a very special gift, and it was on Easter. And so he gave her this golden Easter egg, and it's a very small egg covered in fine jewels, and when you push a little button on it, it opens up, and there's a watch, and it was, of course, very precious, and he had hired the most skilled craftsman of that day, his name was Carl Fabergé, to construct this glorious gift for his wife, and of course, she treasured it, and she loved it, but in 1916, a number of years after she received the gift, the royal family was overthrown, all of Russia was in upheaval, and the gift was lost. No one knew where this Fabergé egg 
ended up. And so for generation after generation, year after year, it was a mystery. If it had been melted down, if it had been destroyed, no one knew until 2012, all right? 96 years after it was last seen. In 2012, an unknown man in the Midwestern area of the United States bought the golden egg at a flea market. He planned to melt it down, didn't know what it was, and decided, I'm just going to use the gold for something else, until just before he was about to melt it down, he decided to Google the inscribed name that was on the egg. And when he typed that name into Google, he discovered that he had purchased the lost imperial Fabergé egg. And no one knows, of course, how it got to America. No one knows where it was those 90-plus years. But there's a man right now in the Midwestern United States who made $33 million on the sale of a flea market item because he recognized what was sitting on his kitchen table, right? The treasure of royalty bestowed on a common man. The treasure of royalty bestowed on a common man. Why is Acts chapter 2 such an important passage in Scripture? The Scripture that we just read, this story of the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, I think sometimes, friends, we have a tendency to see life as cyclical. You know, what goes around comes around, the circle of life. And nothing's really changing, nothing's really moving anywhere, but the Scripture doesn't teach us that. The Scripture says that life is not just a big circle. Certainly there are patterns and seasons in life, but life is heading somewhere. Life is moving somewhere. In fact, human history is going somewhere even right now. And throughout the Old Testament, we're told about a day that will come that the theologians call the age of the Spirit. In the Old Testament prophets, we read in Jeremiah 31 about how God will establish a new covenant between His people and Himself. In uh, Ezekiel 36, we're told of the coming of the Spirit, where the Spirit will dwell within the hearts of humanity, where people will be able to receive the Spirit of God. And then the prophet Joel tells us that there will be a day where God pours out His Spirit on all flesh. Now, when Jesus came and lived and died and rose after his resurrection, he pulled his disciples together. And the uh, Gospel of Luke records what he tells them in Luke chapter 24 after his resurrection. Look at it. He says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. Look at that word promised, right? What my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high, all right? And so the disciples wait in this upper room in Jerusalem, and they're praying. Day goes by, two days goes by, three days goes by, ten days goes by. And then the Jewish feast of Pentecost arrives. Now that word Pentecost, it means 50th, okay? And it was an important feast in the Jewish calendar. It was, in fact, the second most important feast of the year after the Passover. And the Jewish feast of Pentecost was known as the Feast of Harvest, because it was the feast where the harvest began to come in, and the people began to celebrate the blessing of God on the land. And so it's on this day, the day of the harvest. You see what God's doing here, right? He's painting a picture. The day of the harvest that the Holy Spirit is given to the church and the people of God are clothed with power from on high. But it's important to understand, church, that this moment in history is significant, not just because of what happened to the disciples, but because of God's intention for you and I 2,000 years later. See, when these disciples received the power of the Holy Spirit, they were already believers. In fact, we're told that they had already been saved. They had already been born again. They were already converts to Christianity. And they were also already having the dwelling of the Spirit within them. 
in an earlier passage in Scripture in John 20, Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And so these disciples had already received the indwelling Holy Spirit. They had already received the gift of salvation, but they still lacked something. They still needed to be clothed with power. And so the scripture gives this experience multiple different names. It's called to be filled with the spirit. It's called to be baptized in the spirit. It's called to have the spirit poured out upon you. But every time this outpouring occurs, those who receive it experience an extraordinary power to advance the mission of Jesus and a profound effectiveness, a supernatural effectiveness in their ability to follow Christ and they're changed. And so you look at the story of Peter, if you know the story in the New Testament, you know that Peter is timid, he's afraid, he betrays Jesus, he's insecure, he's outspoken in a not-so-healthy way. And then when the Spirit comes upon him, Peter's not made a perfect man, but he's different. He's different. Now he has a courage. Now he has a boldness. Now he's seeing miracles. He has the treasure of royalty bestowed on a common man. And Jesus, of course, calls this a promise which means that you can't earn it, that you don't deserve it. That's why Peter says in verse 39, look at it with me. He says, the promise of, is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise is for you. You're like, well, that doesn't apply to me because I wasn't in that particular location at that particular moment in Acts chapter 2, 2,000 years ago. And your children, well, I could possibly be one of those people's children. And for all who are far off, well, that maybe might include me. And for all whom the Lord our God will call. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, you've trusted Christ, you've given him your heart. I've got good news for you. There is an endowment of power that God has made available to you through the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. And it's a profound gift designated for royalty bestowed on people like you and me. And this is yours. Go ahead and look at that person next to you at every one of our locations and just tell them again, this is yours. This is yours. It's not just for the spiritually elite. It's not just for those who earn it through prayer. It's not just for those who deserve it because they're so holy. Holy, it's for all of God's children, extraordinary supernatural power. But what if, like that Fabergé egg that was sold at a flea market, what if the people have forgotten the value of what God has made available? What if we've never Googled it? What if we've never looked up? What is the inscription on this beautiful egg? What is the uh, identifying mark of this great gift? Why have we treated it so lightly when it's been available all along, an extraordinary power that belongs to you and me right now, right now. Oh, I pray that God would begin to stir your heart today, that you'd begin to experience a spiritual hunger for more of God's power. You know, we live in a generation that is absolutely desperate for the supernatural. I wonder if all along it's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that this world has been so desperately searching for. Hey man, come on, I came to preach today. So Peter stands up in front of this crowd, right? And he starts telling them that they're experiencing the fulfillment of a prophecy written by Joel 600 years before this date in Acts chapter 2. And he says, this is the fulfillment of what Joel said in the last days. I'll pour out my spirit, right? In the last days. Are we living in the last days? You know, you hear a lot about that. People sell books about the last days. What does it mean to be the last days? Well, according to scripture, 
When Jesus came, died, rose, and ascended, he had now begun what the Bible calls the last days. Now you might say, well, that's a long last days. It's 2,000 years. Well, yeah, it has been 2,000 years, but it's the beginning of the last days, and now we are still currently living in the last days, and we're not told specifically when Christ will return and begin a new era of human history, but you and I are in fact living in the last days. And the scripture tells us as time progresses what to expect. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, that's when we're living, there will be very difficult times. Now listen to this description. I wonder if you can identify with any culture you may be aware of. For people will love only themselves and their money. No, I don't know anybody like that. And they'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. And they'll be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and they'll hate what is good. And they'll betray their friends. They'll be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. Peter tells us more about these last days in 2 Peter 3. Look at it. He says, most importantly, most importantly, most importantly, this is significant. I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking truth and following their own desires. They'll say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything's remained the same since the world was first created. See, we're just in a big cycle. We're not heading anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Nothing's changing. You still believe that Jesus is coming back on a white horse? Are you serious? You believe that? That's just silliness. It's been 2,000 years. It's not a part of our lives. It's not real to us. But look what Peter says in verse 8. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a 1,000 years to the Lord and a 1,000 years like a day. Friend, he wrote that a long time ago. I think Peter had an unction that it was going to be a little while. And so Jesus tells us about these last days. He says there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars, earthquakes, pestilences, famines, pandemics. That's what he says. And so often Christians develop what I would call a spiritual pessimism. We'd say, oh, the world's going to hell. So let's just hide and complain, you know, because it's going to be hard but what I think we've often failed to realize is that along with all these prophetic unctions about these last days being challenging, these last days having wars and famines and all these other things, that running parallel to that in the same texts oftentimes throughout the Old Testament and New, when the scripture describes the last days, it does not just describe difficult times. It also describes an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is like no other time in history. The last days, God will pour his spirit on all flesh. Jesus said that the whole world will hear the gospel and then the end will come. That running parallel to the challenges of the last days is an outpouring of the last days. Why are we doing a series called This Present Renewal? Because I'm convinced that though we are living in the last days and there are challenges and wars and difficulties and diseases all around us, there is also an outpouring of the Holy Spirit where God is available to take a hold of your heart and set it on fire for him in these last days. And Peter calls it the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift, that means you don't earn it. That means you don't deserve it. That means it's bestowed, the treasure of royalty bestowed on a common man. This is yours. This is yours. Now, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a promise. It's a promise given all through scripture and fulfilled in this age in which we're living. But it also creates the opportunity for a supernatural unity. I want you to see this in the text. It's interesting. Because the day of Pentecost was a special day. People were traveling from all over the world, visiting Jerusalem on that day. And we're told that there are Parthians and Medes 
that hear their own language. They came from the East. They're of Arab descent, okay? Ethnicity-wise, they're from that part of the world. And then there's Cappadocia and Asia. They're from the North. They're from Asian descent, okay? Then you've got Libyans and Egyptians. They're from the South. They're African. They're from African descent. Then you've got Romans and Cretans. They're from the West. They're European descent. So you've got North, you've got South, you've got East, you've got West. All of them heard the gospel in their native language. Now, why would God do this? This is so important. It's a strange moment. It's an incredible miracle. Why would God do this? Well, coming up this winter, we're going to spend six weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? How do His gifts work? How does the outpouring of the Holy Spirit work? How do the fruits of the Spirit grow in our lives? And so I'm excited to get into all that. But I want to show you today in Acts chapter 2 that this moment was a divine reversal of what occurred in Genesis 11 way back in human history when humanity joined forces together and said, we don't need God at the center of our lives. And they built this great tower known as the Tower of Babel. But God confused their languages and humanity was divided into various camps. It's an interesting story, but what we see here in Acts chapter 2, so many years later, is a reversal of Babel. That just as people were divided because they had various languages and they cultivated different cultures in midst of their inability to communicate, so now by the Spirit, God brings all of humanity together under a banner of supernatural unity. Do you see it? Different tribes, different tongues, different nations. What's he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that every Everyone, everyone is welcome in the kingdom of God. That's why he says all flesh, right? He's tearing down the racial divide between black and white, Hispanic and Asian. He's tearing down the divides of our racial differences. And then he says sons and daughters. He's tearing down the generational divide, men and women. Then he says your old men will see dreams. Your young men will see visions. He's tearing down that generational divide in age. And then he says even the slaves, the servants, the economic divide is going to come down. He's talking about about this divine leveling. The Holy Spirit has come to heal the wounds that have divided humanity and bring a profound unity in this thing called the church. Come on, amen. Oh, it's so important. I remember years ago, I was, um, I was a young man in Germany. I was in my early 20s, and I was with a friend of mine, a German friend. His name's Manuel, and we, we were together for a number of days, and he asked me if I wanted to go and visit um, a site from, uh, it was a, a place where there was a mass grave during World War II of Jews who had been killed in Germany. And so we go to this, we go to this site, and, you know, it's a very somber uh, place, and of course a place with all sorts of historical information about this great loss and the people who died, and, and we're standing there at this site, and it was such an interesting moment because, of course, I, I didn't fight in World War II. I'm not that old. And, 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 and Manuel, he didn't fight in World War II either. And, and so we don't have any direct connection to the division that our nations once experienced. But here we are all these years later standing at this gravesite, and our ancestors, you know, killed each other in a war. And, and we stood there, and we began to pray. And it was such an interesting experience because as we began to pray, we both, we both experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon us in such a profound way, and I just realized in that moment that, that it's only by the Spirit that these ancient divides can be healed. It's only by the Spirit that the injustices and the brokenness of the past can be healed. See, the unity of the Spirit brings to the heart a humility, a teachability, a willingness to forgive, a willingness to listen. And so it was this unity of the Spirit, this bond of peace, that in that moment I realized this is the only way that the human race can truly move forward from the broken fragments within our society. And so, of course, throughout history, we see God using various men and women to call the church back to the power 
of the unity that's available in the Holy Spirit. I love the story in the early 1900s of William Seymour. Some of you may or may not be uh, aware of who that is and how God used this man, but William Seymour had a profound hunger for God in a time where he should have been looked over and uh, opportunities were really not available. William Seymour had this hunger for God and for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that was unlike anyone else in that time. And of course, as America, even right now, recognizes Black History Month in the month of February, it's important for the church to remember that there are those who have gone before us and modeled this example of supernatural unity in the Spirit. And it's possible. And William Seymour led the way in another generation at another time. And his hunger for God really did change the world. And I want to take a moment and just learn a little bit of his story. Let's watch. There are those in life that look set up to succeed, practically, socially, culturally, financially. William J. Seymour was not one of those people. In fact, for him, it seemed like the very opposite. Son of a slave, blind in one eye, a young black man living in an intense racist environment, life didn't look like it was in his favor. Yet God used him, and he became one of the most influential African-American Christian leaders of his time, and his impact can still be felt today. Seymour was born on the 2nd of May, 1870, in Louisiana, and his parents, Simon and Phyllis, were both recently freed slaves. Not much is known of his younger years, but later he escaped the harsh prejudice of Louisiana to live in Cincinnati. However, there he suffered a bout of smallpox, and the attack caused him to lose his left eye. Amazingly, his recovery from the potentially fatal illness actually compelled him to become a preacher. He grew an unwavering fascination to experience the Holy Spirit. He was hungry for finding truth, and had a passion to share it, both of which fueled his travels to a great number of different cities. Seymour soon had a desire to become a student at a Bible school in Texas, and sought to join the classes. But because segregation was still happening, they would not provide him with a seat in the class. Instead, he was only allowed to listen through an open door or window. His attendance did not last very long, as he grew sick of the racism. He believed that racial integration in worship was the true heart of Christ. However, from the teaching he did here, he realized the power that was the Holy Spirit and what it meant for him. Seymour was led to move to Los Angeles, where he wasted no time in making his presence felt. A kind couple called Mr. and Mrs. Asbury offered to host some gatherings in their home where Seymour could preach and pray. And on April the 9th, 1906, God began doing something in the hearts of people that was wild and real, and it continued for three nights. As excitement increased about these events taking place, more and more people came to witness the meetings, and the Asbury home quickly became too small to accommodate the services. So, Seymour moved the congregation into an unused church building on Azusa Street, which was, at the time, being used as a warehouse. The congregation, made up of people of all races, cleaned out the building and then filled the interior with makeshift furnishings. The pulpit was made of two boxes nailed together, and the seats made from planks nailed to empty barrels. Seymour made his home on the floor above the church and began holding services three times a day, seven days a week. A diverse array of volunteers helped assist the gatherings, black and white, men and women, it gained national attention as the Azusa Street Revival and was a huge catalyst for the expansion of the Pentecostal movement across the world. The Azusa Street Revival was always filled beyond capacity as it attracted more than a thousand people a day and had a reputation for wild scenes of passion and prayer. 
People were amazed that Seymour, from his unlikely and humble beginnings, had realized his vision of a completely integrated church community alive with the Spirit of God. Come on, somebody. You know, one thing that I've learned from William Seymour, just studying his life and learning about his story, is that he knew that unity wasn't about perfect theological alignment, that leaders and Christians, denominations, are going to see some issues within Scripture differently. But there was a supernatural love that comes from the Holy Spirit that enables the church to come together in a way that it's impossible for any other community on earth to unite. See, when God's love is made real in your heart, when God's love is made real in your heart to such a degree that you are filled with that love, overwhelmed with that love, changed by the fact that there's a God in heaven who in the midst of all your brokenness and issues loves you. When that love becomes real to you, it enables you to love others in a way that was impossible. It enables you to forgive. It enables you to listen. It enables you to become aware of those around you. I love what Seymour said. Look at, he said, the Pentecostal power, when you sum it up, is just more of God's Love, if it does not bring more of God's love, it is simply a counterfeit. See, the secret to unity is a love that comes from heaven, a Holy Spirit love, a divine love. Question for you today, have you experienced the outpouring of God's love in your heart to such a degree that it enables you to forgive those who otherwise would be seen as unforgivable? It, it enables you to love those who are completely different from you, from a different background, different way of looking at the world, a different position, a different political persuasion? Have you experienced a love that allows you to stand above those things because it's the very love of God given to you that you're now able to give to others? This is what it means to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. See, God's always writing a story, friends. He's always writing a story. And if you know the Old Testament law, we're told that the day of Pentecost means 50th, right? But there's another very important 50th in Old Testament tradition, and that's the year of Jubilee. See, the year of Jubilee was the 50th year in Israel's cycle and in their, uh, in their calendar. And it was an important year because in the year of Jubilee, the people of Israel would go through a process where all debts were completely wiped out. All all slaves were freed indefinitely and all land was returned to their rightful owners. So in other words, the 50th year in Israel was the year where God leveled the playing field for all people across Israel. And so the outpouring of Pentecost, 50th, is again a picture, not just of the coming harvest, but of a supernatural unity where God levels the playing field. It's the year of Jubilee where the gospel puts us on the same foundation that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that all were slaves to sin but can be freed in Christ and all who believe have an inheritance from the Father the gift of royalty in the heart of a common person and when you realize that you've been justified as a gift by God's grace and that you didn't earn it or deserve it and that the ground at the cross truly is level it enables you to love in a way that's impossible 
otherwise. This is the hope of the world. A church come together, different tribes, nations, cultures, and languages, worshiping the lamb who loved us, accepted us, forgave us. Listen, I've been praying for Vox Church. I've been praying that God would do something unique in this house, that God would teach us to be listeners, teach us to be humble, teach us to forgive, teach us to transcend the divisions of our society. Not because we all see everything the same way or we all look the same way or we all come from the same background, but because we've all been washed in the blood of Jesus. Oh, there's a power. The outpouring of the Spirit, it's a promise that belongs to the church. The outpouring of the Spirit provides the opportunity for supernatural unity. And it's so important for us to realize that Acts chapter 2 teaches us that the outpouring of the Spirit is an experiential reality. It's an experiential reality. What does that mean? It means that this isn't an idea. This isn't something that, oh, I receive it by faith. You know, I believe I I accept it. No, no, it's not a concept. It's not a theory to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is a conscious experience. It's an experience that changes you. It changes you. It turns doctrine into passion. It turns timidity into confidence. It turns ideas about God into deep convictions about the reality of who God is. There's a story in Acts chapter 19 where Paul meets a group of believers, but they don't understand the fullness of the gospel. And so he begins to describe to them the power of the Holy Spirit. And they didn't know that they had a golden egg sitting on their kitchen table that was worth a fortune. And so he tells them that they can be baptized in water and then they should be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so he prays with them and they experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. But it was powerful. It was supernatural and it was evidenced to them. In other words, it was a self-authenticating experience. They knew that they had been filled with power. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just a theory. It was an actual, real, personal experience. And I love in the story how Jesus makes them wait 10 days, right? He says, go to Jerusalem and wait for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the power of God to manifest. And so they're sitting there. And you can imagine the disciples. It's been an exciting week. Jesus dies. Jesus rises from from the dead. They spend 40 days walking with the risen Christ day after day, hearing him, uh, listening to him, experiencing this nearness with him. It's amazing. And then he leaves. He ascends to heaven. And he says, all right, fellas, wait. I'd imagine the first day they're all sitting there going, all right, what are, we, what are we doing exactly right now? You know, oh, pray, wait and pray. Jesus said, wait and pray. So day three, day four, why are we doing this? Wait, pray, day 10, it says, and then suddenly, everybody say suddenly. Suddenly, suddenly something changes. There's a rushing, mighty wind. And never again, by the way, in the New Testament, does God manifest his presence quite like that day. There's sometimes where there's wind. There's sometimes where there's tongues. There's sometimes where there's fire, but never again does it happen exactly like that. Jesus describes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 3 like this. Don't miss this. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. So is the one who is born of the Spirit. In other words, although there are principles about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there is no perfect formula for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you got to wait 10 days. Sometimes it's a suddenly. Sometimes it's a tongue. Sometimes it's a fire. Sometimes it's a wind. And we have a tendency to want to systemize everything, to want to structure everything, to want to create a plan for everything. And that's because we like to be in control. Come on, let's be honest. It's because we like to be in control. But I want to tell you today that God cannot be domesticated. 
complicated, all right? God cannot be put in our little bubble. The wind blows where it wishes. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit will look different. Your experience will not mirror mine precisely, neither will mine mirror yours. God does it in different ways at different times with different people. But here's what we know. The outpouring of the Spirit is for you, and you can be endowed with power from on high to be effective for Christ. That is consistent in every one of these experiences. I could tell you stories. When I was 15 years old, I became so hungry. Young Christian, I became so hungry for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I remember just spending so much time asking God, saying, God, would you pour out your Spirit in my life? Now, don't misunderstand. I was already a Christian. I already had the indwelling Spirit. But I knew that I needed to be clothed with power. And so I just began to pray, and I began to pray, and I began to pray, and I remember one day, really when I least expected it at a church service, the power of God came upon my life in such a personal and profound way. I experienced it through my whole body. I remember the experience of peace. It lasted about an hour. That was so overwhelming, I couldn't even speak. A supernatural warmth that came upon me from God. And I remember God spoke so specifically and directly to my heart that day that from that moment on, everything in my life was different. I was changed. And I began to experience an effectiveness every time I shared about Christ, an effectiveness every time I volunteered to do ministry. And it's not the only time the Holy Spirit was poured out in my experience. Each time, in fact, have been unique experiences. Oh my goodness, if the Lord would just get our attention today. If the Lord would just get our attention today. If the Lord would just get our attention today, why do you keep calling coincidence what God calls providence? Why do you keep calling coincidence what God calls providence? I read a story about a psychiatrist and a missionary his name's John White. He experienced the Holy Spirit different than I did. Let me read a little bit of his, his experience to you. He said, on one occasion, I prayed with the elders and the deacons in my home. This is from his church. Suddenly, I saw in front of me a column of flame of about two feet in width. It seemed to arise from beneath the floor and to pass through the ceiling of the room. I knew without being told, knew by some infallible kind of knowing. Now, this isn't some, you know, uh, you know, uneducated. This is a guy who's a psychiatrist, very successful, that transcended the use of my intellect that I was in the presence of God, the God of holiness. In stunned amazement, I watched a rising column of flames in our living room while my brothers remained with their heads quietly bowed and their eyes closed. For years afterward, I never spoke of the incident. How could I live and see what I saw Garbled words of love and of worship tumbled out of my mouth as I struggled to hang on to my self-control. I was no longer trying to worship. Worship was undoing me, pulling me apart. And to be pulled apart was both terrifying and full of glory. What am I trying to tell you? I've read hundreds of hundreds of accounts, men and women, old and young, the educated, the uneducated, the poor and the rich, the white and the black, all different people, different walks of life, Hundreds of hundreds of experiences of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
What we need to understand is it's not just an idea. It's not just a concept. It's not something we just take by faith. It's an experiential reality. It can be experienced. And your experience will look different than your brothers or your sisters, but there is one thing that marks them and ties them together. It's that you are clothed with power. You are clothed with power. Now, I've been in this building. We're here in Brantford right now, streaming to every location. I've been in this building uh, a lot of times in the last two months, uh, month after month, or uh, you know, day after day, hour after hour in this building. I never heard the sound that we just heard a couple minutes ago. I'm just being straight with you. I've never heard that before. You might be here and uh, you know, you're a Christian, but you've never experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you didn't even know there was a power that could be enabling you to live beyond yourself. I want to tell you today that there's a treasure in your house. There's a treasure in your house. There's a gift in your living room, a royal gift that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve, that this is yours. This is yours. Or maybe you're here and you have experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, but your heart's grown cold. It feels stale. It feels distant. Cry out to God again. Cry out to God again for a filling of His Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Apostle Peter tells us specifically how to experience the filling of the Holy Spirit. And it's so simple, it often offends us in its simplicity. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, everybody receive, the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says it begins with repentance. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, a turning away towards God and away from self. And then he says, be baptized. By the way, on March 6th, we're having a baptism here at Vox Service. And I encourage you to sign up if you've not been water baptized. But then he says, you must receive. And this is important. He says, you must receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is where many of us get in trouble. We trip over this because, you know, the common word in the Greek language, which is what this was written in originally, for receive was the Greek word dekomai. Now that word dekomai means to passively receive. It's the idea of kind of sitting there and saying, well, God has my phone number. If he wants to get a hold of me, he can call me at any time, right? That's the idea of dekomai. But Peter doesn't use the word dekomai in this text. He doesn't say receive passively. Instead, he uses the Greek word lambano, which is translated to claim or to apprehend, to take hold of. It's describing an active receiving. So you don't earn it. You don't deserve it, but you must pursue it and lay hold of it. You must receive it. So you can't dekomai the spirit. You have to lambano the spirit. You can't passively hang out and hope that God fills you. You have to pursue him and believe him and seek him and trust him. And sometimes it takes 10 days and sometimes it takes even longer. And sometimes it takes some extra time alone with God. Sometimes it takes some hours on your knees. I don't know if you've ever heard of Kathy Boone. You probably haven't heard of Kathy Boone. She died a couple years ago in Oregon. She was 49 years old. I read her story this week. She was homeless when she died. She was actually starving, hungry, and desperately alone. In many ways, Kathy Boone's life is a tragic life. Died too young. But the strange thing about Kathy Boone's story is that years before her death, a private investigator had been trying to find her for months and months and months, trying to find Kathy Boone because a family member had left her an inheritance. $900,000 was sitting in a bank account for Kathy Boone. So they tried email, they tried phone call, they tried Facebook, they tried advertisements in the newspaper, they tried a private investigator wandering the streets, all of these avenues trying to tell this woman who could not afford a room to stay in, this is yours. 
This is yours. This is yours. And Kathy Boone died never having accessed a single dollar of that inheritance. How many believers live our lives never experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, never living in the power of the Holy Spirit. Just last night, I'm praying. It's so crazy. I'm praying. You can't make this stuff up. I'm praying for this moment, crying out to God. And as I am, my text goes off. And because I'm a man of God, I didn't even look at my phone. No, I'm just kidding. I actually, I did. I looked at my phone. And it was a friend of mine, a guy who has an incredibly strong prophetic gift. He lives in Delaware. I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, honestly. And randomly, he texts me and says, I'm praying for you right now in the spirit. <laughs> I just looked down. And then this morning, I'm up early seeking God. And I'm on my face and I'm saying, spirit of God, come. Spirit of God, come. And I get a text from a friend in Providence, Rhode Island. He's a pastor. He said, God put you on my heart this morning. Spirit of God, come. Literally, he texted me the very phrase I was praying out of my mouth when I saw the text. Oh, I just wish God would get your attention. What does he have to do to get your attention today? What does he have to do to convince your heart that there's a golden egg on your table? That that little phrase in James chapter 4 applies to you right now. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The treasure of royalty bestowed on a common man, unearned, undeserved, but pursued. What could happen if a whole church became hungry for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives now? I want to invite you in Greater Stanford and Hartford and Middletown and Springfield and right here in Brantford and those joining us online to stand with me right now. I want to pray. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to interrupt our schedules today, to change our focus. I know you got 15 things on your agenda for tomorrow and the day before. Friend, what could be more important than this moment right now? On February 14th, We're going to begin a five-day fast here at Vox. Our whole staff is participating from the 14th to the 18th. We'll be fasting food. We invite you. We'll, of course, send out information on our various communication channels about this. But we're going to be fasting for five days, not to earn anything from God, but to humble ourselves and to say to God that we don't live on bread. We live on every word that comes out of your mouth, oh God. And so maybe you've never fasted. We encourage you to participate in some or all. Maybe you skip a meal. Maybe you do the whole fast. Or maybe you fast TV or whatever it might be for you. But we're going to dedicate those five days to just seek the Lord. And you're invited to be a part of it with us. And then on February 20th, we'll have our church services in the morning. And then we'll go to six consecutive nights of gatherings here at our Brantford location. 7 p.m. every night, the 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And to me, it really doesn't matter if there's five people or 500 people. We're going to seek the Lord. We're not coming with a huge agenda. We're not coming with a 10-point sermon. We're coming to seek God. I'm going to be here every night, and I encourage you, join us. Drive out. Come be a part on Tuesday, on Wednesday, for as many as you're able to come. But it's an opportunity to seek the Lord, to seek the Lord together. Have you experienced an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that's led to extraordinary power in your life?
If you say, well, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't think I have, well, then I've got good news for you. This is yours. This is yours. Have you lost sight of the power you once knew? Where your love has grown cold and your relationship with God has grown stale? He can renew you like the morning. And He's willing. This is yours. This is yours. What if today you began to seek God for an outpouring of His Spirit in your life? Would you do that? Would you pray with me today? Holy Spirit, I pray that you would stir our hearts this morning. I pray that you would begin to move among us in ways that transcend our natural minds. Thank you that you show us in your word that experiencing the power of the Spirit is not just a theory or a concept or a conviction, but it's actually an experiential reality that we know when we've experienced that power. I thank you that you do it in all different ways, but that you're doing it today still that the promise is just as valid as when you spoke it, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Pour out your Holy Spirit, O Lord, on your church. Pour out your Holy Spirit, O Lord, even now. Meet each of us in a unique way as we come needing the power of your Spirit in our lives right now. Power not just to survive the moment, but power to thrive, power to be witnesses, power to share Christ, power to live the life that you've called us to live when our flesh holds us back. God, I pray for a supernatural power to come upon your church that the doubts would blow out the door. God, and a new confidence would grip our hearts, that the fears would be washed away in the river of your grace, Lord, that the divisions would be cleansed by the great waters of Christ. Lord, I pray that even now you would pour out your spirit as we sing, as we worship, as we turn our hearts towards heaven. Lord, you're doing something in this present renewal, and I pray that you do it in me now, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97,000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.